0: you bring it into the shed it's like this is our shed and this is this is our boat now you know you can have it back when we finish with it it's yours then but it's ours now
1: Well, barges used to come in and often they used to carry grain and we'd have to lift up the ceiling of the barge which is a wooden floor that covers the framework at the bottom. Uh, rats would nest underneath there which we'd chase around the holes with shovels. <laughs>
0: Well, if it was
2: left to my son's, Barrett's homes will move in here the day i drop down dead.
3: Hello and welcome to Digital Works All History Podcasts. This series is called Bend It, Shape It, an all history of boatyard workers on the tidal Thames. The Thames has been the lifeblood of London since Roman times and boats that have plied its waters have been built and maintained by skilled workers since then. We have interviewed workers that have worked in various boatyards along the river from the Thames barrier in the east to Teddington in the west. Working with wood, steel, paint, saws, planes and blowtorches, these are the stories of the men who have kept London afloat. Episode 1 covers apprenticeships and the early days.
1: I came to leave school. Um, they asked me what I wanted to do for a living. Um, I said I'd like to be a boat builder. Um, they took the easy route, and I ended up as a barge builder, which is a, a very different environment—the um, commercial end of the river, uh, which mainly was, you know, hard work with steel riveting, forging, shaping plates. It came to stood me in good stead later on because it, it was a, a skill set that later my employers wanted uh, as they moved
0: away from wooden barge, wooden boats. Tufts actually said to me, we'll give you an apprenticeship. And um, I was sent to college. So I would actually get the paperwork to say I'd served an apprenticeship, which to me that was a big thing. So... And, uh, yeah, we went to, um, we were sent to Southampton Technical College. So it was just one day a week and to get on the train and go down there.
1: There was a lot, quite a few parentheses. I suppose we were used uh, partly as cheap labour. But, and there was a shortage of, of skilled men as well.
4: Because my dad was a boiler maker, I then decided to follow in his footsteps. But in a more modern part of the business, which was uh, electric arc welding. You do a year's probation in a, a machine shop, just learning the different t- tools and what have you. Uh, and then you did a progressive five-year apprenticeship working with tradesmen. So you got to learn the full, the full skills of the other trades connected with the welding. I was
1: fortunate to be put with one man uh, who was quite elderly and hence had a great deal of experience and wisdom. He taught me... About how, how metal behaves when you when you heat it and bend it and shape it, how to do it in the most efficient way.
5: I really have learnt my boat building skills from a number of different people, and it's been quite useful because different people have taught me slightly different ways. Um, so that um, I, I working here at Richmond, I learnt from two or three um, quite traditional Thames boat builders. I learnt more general woodwork and shipbuilding from a Royal Naval ship's carpenter and shipwright when I worked in the local Royal Park. Um, And then when I set up, um, I had a very, very luckily, I had a couple of old boat builders who said, oh, I'll come out of retirement and come and give you a hand. So. I had a good East Coast boat builder, quite different ways, you know, and I didn't approve of Thames ways. So I had a sort of balanced view of of how things could be done differently. The main thing was that you achieved, you know, a a superb product that it had to be um, very well built. There's a tradition in boat building. You can imagine that it has to be right. The end of the day, your product has to float and stay afloat.
2: My experience with working here, I didn't I do any apprenticeship or anything. I picked up what I've learnt through my family, like my father, father and my granddad, with being with them and watching them how they worked, and then learning that way. You know, my grandfather used to give me a bit of wood to plane and things like that, just to practice. You know, and I'd help him put wooden planks in boats and and things like that.
6: Uh, got to the time of leaving school and. Uh my mum and dad said, oh, no, you're going to work for Frank <laughs> down <laughs> uh, down the yard in Twickenham. And I sort of, oh, right. And I didn't really know a great deal about the yard then. Um, so I came down here when I was still at school um, during the Easter holidays and did a week here, which, and I liked it. And, uh, and I started on the 1st of June, 82, so it was 35 years ago.
2: Well, I came here, I, I didn't know anything. I didn't know I was a waterman. I, I, I knew how to tie boats up, I knew how to untie them and tow them around. But as for the fact of actually running a boatyard, I just had to self-tilt. But I had some good people around me who, who, who put me in the right direction. Uh, it was at that
5: age when you're thinking about retirement, and, uh, but yet nowhere near ready to do that, and I felt uh, I wanted to find a, an occupation that I could really enjoy that would use my physical skills as well as my brain. I trained at the Boat Building Academy in in, uh, Lyme Regis for a year, which was a wonderful experience. It was a uh, full-time course and we um, actually got to build our own boats and drive them away, sail them away uh, at the end of the
2: course.
7: They, they were looking for people, at up, so they just wanted to take people on. And because I could paint and fill, I'd been doing cars up as well, um, I went along for an interview. And we ended up in the paint shop, and he gave me a paintbrush and said, this is a paintbrush, what end do you put in the paint? i <laughs> I got the job.
6: I always remember the first job I was actually given to do, and there was this big engine standing in the corner of the yard, um, which I believe was a Cummins, which was probably seven foot tall, you know, with a radiator probably on the end of it, which was probably eight, nine foot tall. So it's a great big engine. And they said to me, go and take the air filters off of it. And I remember just standing there, 15 years old, thinking, where the air filter was, <laughs> and uh, I felt silly having to ask, really. But it was, you know, that was the beginning of, you know, learning all about engines as well, you know.
5: Unite and unite, let all the world unite, for summer is the comfort of today. And whither thou dost go, we all will unite, in the merry morning of May. <laughs> and then I came to work here at Richmond, uh, working on the hire boats, uh, hiring out traditional Thames skiffs. Uh, The old boys, they were all old boys in their 70s and 80s, um, left me with an old skiff, which um, they didn't want in the hire fleet. So I put it on a hand truck, wheeled it the five miles to Hampton, which you could do in those days, just through Twickenham Junction down the way, and restored that for a year. And then we took to the water, myself and six, seven mates, uh, rowing up and down the Thames. Um, But then... I found that I was more and more interested in the restoration of old skiffs and um, eventually I took in work from other friends um, repairing their skiffs. We just, the resurgence of traditional boating was coming along at the end of the 70s so that there was a demand to restore these beautiful Victorian Edwardian skiffs.
4: Well, well, it's just, because I worked, did my, converted my own barge, the first things you get asked during that process by other boat owners to say, can you do this for me? Can you do that for me as well? So it's just you'd fall into it really.
0: What happened initially is that I called, got called in by a company called Tidal Cruisers at Greenland Dock to weld and build the back of a boat for them, um, which I did. And after doing that, they were happy, and they said, we've just purchased a boat. Um, would you do the conversion on it? So I said, yes, I would. You know, give me some pictures and I'll get some drawings done. That boat was a Marchioness. And, and Once I'd done one, then other people on the river saw what I had done to an old boat, an old open passenger boat, and then other companies, Catamaran Cruises and Wilson's Launches, then they came with their boats, and I modernised and converted them. That was the basis and nucleus of my business initially. You know,
1: riveting underneath the bottom
0: of a barge is uh, uh,
1: is very hard work, um, and you know you build up muscle strength and that and cope with it eventually. But as a as a youngster, you know it's that's heavy work.
2: We had barge builders here that just did woodwork. The older guys. Um, but the majority of us did, did both. Or you might have a barge on the grid that's got a hole in the bottom, so got, you'll be sitting underneath the barge in the mud, cold weather, and, and trying to weld a doubler over under the bottom of the barge. Well, barges used to come in and often they used to carry
1: grain and we'd have to lift up the ceiling of the barge, which is a wooden floor that covers the framework of the bottom. Uh, rats would nest underneath there. Which we'd chase around the holes with shovels.
4: <laughs> when I came into the trade, the riveted side was almost on its last legs in terms of construction of new ships. So, still, old ships were, were still um, repaired riveted wise because that's naturally the way they were built. But. I worked in the boatyard, a barge yard in Battersea by St
1: Mary's Church. And it's from there that I went to Tufts. Uh, they were the biggest boat builders on the river. And they also were doing civil engineering work. They had just taken on that kind of work. So I began to work alongside um, a gang doing that work, which I became quite interested in.
2: People walking around, you know, it used to be like, um... A train station, you know, you're walking backwards and forwards to the stores to get your bits then back onto your job and you'd meet someone, you'd just stop for five minutes and then the foreman would appear and he'd say, Scarpa, off and off. And um, so, yeah, it was a very busy time. There was about 70 people at that time. It was quite a big,
1: you know, all the different trades, plumbers, boat builders, fitters. The, the boat builders were the spirit of the yard, really. Um... And that lasted for many years after the yard went. We used to have a regular reunion every year for
4: quite a few years. It Used to be like that everywhere. People would go. A foreman would go to work in a second-hand three-piece suit. That's how you knew he was a foreman. Whereas the worker would have old jeans on or any old army coats, anything that they could get uh, that was for nothing because you know the wages weren't very good and. Uh, yeah, you, 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 you knew how to recognise. A manager would have a winged collar and a, and a bow tie. You know, a superintendent, engineer as well. Most of those were bald. It was the worry.
1: <laughs> well, we used to have a, a chemical toilet that stood on on the end of the wharf, uh, made of corrugated iron. And uh, if you see the foreman go in there, then you, there'd be a hail of rivets coming. Going into the side of the, <coughs> side of the thing, which nobody threw, <laughs> uh, these things lightened the day.
4: The working conditions improved with the formation of the unions, such as the Boilermakers Union, General Engineering Union, um, they then started to fight for better condition, better working conditions. Yeah, there was one particular day that was actually created by, by the unions that was called Labour Day and, and that was something that we called a Beano. So that would be a day off in the week, which was unheard of normally, when we'd all get onto a coach and uh, crates of beer and sandwiches and uh, go down to Margate or South End and walk round the fairground and then go in the pub and then come back and get on the bus and away we go.
2: Um, we had a hooter in, goer in them days at half past nine. So everyone used to line up and the hooter went to rush over to get the front of the queue for the food. Because we used to have our own kitchen here and the food was subsidised. So you'd have a full English breakfast like for, I don't know, 10p, something like that, you know. So it used to be a mad rush, back to the Alamo really, to get over here and uh, get in first. And then obviously you've got 20 minutes to eat it, whereas if you're at the back of the queue, you get 10 minutes.
0: I mean, I was quite young. I mean, I used to be sent up the road every day with something they called the bun run to go to the bakers and the delicatessen and the newsagents and come back with all this food and magazines and whatever, newspapers, cigarettes, and uh, for tea break.
4: A typical day would be uh, eight or half past seven. Uh, you'd go and you'd clock in, press the, press the clock, take your card out. That told them what time you arrived. If you were half an hour late, you were sent home. Uh, 15 minute tea break, half an hour for lunch, scramble out the dockyard to the, the cafe or whatever, or you know, get some lunch, and then five o'clock it was, it was over, and um, not necessarily did you go home. I think it, most of in those days, most of the men would go for, to the pub for a couple of pints before going home.
3: We end this episode with Pat Walsh, Chris and John J. Shankster recalling the building of the Brave Goose, a 150 foot long, 250 ton luxury yacht, one of the largest boats built at Tufts in Teddington.
1: The boat boat was a 120 foot long composite built boat. That means it had steel frameworks and bulkheads, uh, steel sub-deck, the engine beds, the structure which was then clad with two inches of teak planking.
7: When the boat was in the shed, it was huge. And, uh, you know, you, you, I think Chris mentions, you're building this boat and it's all coming together, and it's 350 tonnes, something like that. And you're thinking, how on earth are we going to get it out of the shed?
1: My responsibility was basically building the, the whole engine bed tanks, or bell our thrusters all all the structural side of the thing.
0: I mean that's quite strange when you're working on something like that you just see this huge red steel structure in in a shed and everybody's working around it it's like a huge old like a big old dinosaur somehow but it's going in reverse and you're actually making it into something.
7: While you're constructing these boats The steel slightly distorts in between the frames, so if you actually look down the side of the boat, it's rippled very slightly. And obviously when you put high gloss finish on it, it'll show every dent, every ripple. So we put about a tonne and a half of filler on the outside of the boat, all sanded down. A lot of sanding, yeah. The winter before we launched the goose, it was a particularly cold winter. It was minus numbers for quite a few weeks. And uh, we were trying to use two-part fillers and on the tin, I kept remember reading it, so do not use below 10 degrees Celsius, you know. And it was or sort of 8 in the day in the shed, so the filler wasn't working, you couldn't use stuff. And they actually invested in a heater, a gas heater. And really, we used to just put all the paint and uh, filler in front of the heater. It, wasn't, it didn't heat the shed in any way whatsoever, it just heated the ground in front of the... It's the biggest boat they'd built up that far, above, Ted, uh, above Richmond Bridge at Teddington. And, I mean, the goose was basically built to fit under the middle arch of Richmond Bridge and uh, I left the day before (laughs) just in case anything happened
0: you know and it's uh, and then to see it all painted up and in out on the river afloat to see it as a vessel on on the water and that's quite really quite something to see
3: Thank you for listening to episode one of Bend It, Shape It. The interviews were collected as part of the Thames Festival Trust's Working River Project, produced by Digital Works. The music is by Tim Marion. In episode two, we explore the skills, pride and joy, as well as the pain of working on boats, the business of running a boatyard, their decline on the Thames, and the future of those that still remain. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. To find out more about our All history projects, films and podcasts, visit www.digital-works.co.uk where you can also view No Cash, No Splash, the documentary film made as part of this project.